when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this episode, we'll be discussing Russia's propaganda war with the UK and the alarming rise in knife crime. I'm delighted to be joined by Gideon Rackman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator, Political Correspondent Henry Mans, Deputy Common Editor Miranda Green, and Public Policy Correspondent Robert Wright. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all those usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Russia's battles with the West deepened this week as the information war about the poisoning of Sergei and Yulia Skripal went up a notch. Matters were complicated when the head of the Porton Down Research Laboratory said they were unable to identify the precise source of the Novichok nerve agent. Then where there was a bizarre press conference with the Russian ambassador to Britain who used a Twitter poll to justify his position. And finally there were some terse exchanges at the United Nations where the Russians referenced midsummer murders and threatened the US. UK. Henry Mans, let's begin with what happened with Porton Downs. Normally you don't hear from these shadowy intelligence figures, it's all done through back channels, but this chap appeared on Sky News this week and essentially said we didn't know the precise place of where this nerve agent came from, which was really exactly what the Russians would want because it muddied the case and raised some doubt about the May government's position. Yes, if this was an attempt by Britain to up the pressure, then it to some extent backfired. He said Porton Down, the British military laboratory, had identified it as Novichok, um, but hadn't identified its precise source. Now, he then made clear that's not Porton Down's job. The difficulty is that Boris Johnson, in an interview with a German news outlet, had said that Porton Down had identified People it. People at Porton Down, I think, was his... Uh, so, yeah. so really the error was... Um, by Boris Johnson in making a statement which was incorrect and then not correcting it until several days later. And then also in the British PR campaign about putting someone out who didn't really have much to add and could only really say something which was uh, slightly negative. I mean, the big picture does not change. The British government says it has intelligence and it has Porton Downs analysis and it's highly likely that Russia's behind this attack. And the other thing that complicated as well as Boris's comments were some tweets from the Foreign Office which were unceremoniously scrubbed from the internet, which again referenced experts at Porton Down had identified Novichok as coming from Russia and they had to be removed as well, which is all just a bit embarrassing. Uh, it is slightly embarrassing. There was one tweet which was uh, meant to be a verbatim extract of uh, some comments made by the UK's ambassador in Moscow, um, now, they don't match up with the transcript, but we haven't seen the video. So, you know, you get into endless fact-checking operations. I think the major difficulty for the UK is that Russia is prepared to, to do absolutely anything 
to try and cause a bit of chaos to make things look embarrassing. It, this week it was even asking questions about what had happened to Sergei Skripal's pets, two guinea pigs and a cat. Why, why if there was such a dangerous uh, chemical used in his house, why were they, these pets alive? And then the British government eventually came out and said, well, look, uh, the guinea pigs were dead and the cat had to be put down because it was in such distress. But that takes time. It takes a couple of hours. We know how social media works. We know that sort of half-truths can go a long way. And we know that there are people willing to believe that the mm. British intelligence services are lying and that Russia is telling the truth. So, Gideon, this is where I said it's all been about an information war this week because actually nothing has happened, nothing has changed. The only development really was that Yulia Skripal was awake again, has released a statement saying she's improving and asked for some privacy. But, you know, this is from Russia that denied there were troops in Crimea, denied any involvement with M817. They are the experts at disinformation and all they need is a crack, a chink in the case. And as Henry said, they'll exploit that. And that seems to be exactly what's happened here. Yeah, and I think the very fact that we're wasting four minutes talking about this nonsense shows that in a way it's kind of effective. It's really not even remotely kind of credible. So I I don't think one should waste too much time on it. It's interesting that there's this sort of propaganda war going on. But, you know, the Russian stuff is utterly uh, cynical and utterly incredible because, you know, for example, the Russian ambassador stood up Uh, and said that they were very concerned about the safety of Russians in the UK because so many of them had been murdered. I mean, these these are dissidents, uh, Russian dissidents, who would take refuge in in Britain, and many of whom died in mysterious circumstances. And if anybody murdered them, it was the Russian government. And he knows that. And so one shouldn't be kind of playing this kind of game. And I think it is important to, as Henry suggested, look at the big picture. And I'd say there are two elements. Firstly... We know that the Russian government, as you said, has a consistent record of lying, actually, and also poisoning people. I mean, Viktor Yushchenko in 2004, who was running for the Ukrainian presidency, was poisoned by uh, dioxin. And uh, Alexander Litvinenko died in the UK after being poisoned by a Russian agent who is now a member of the Russian parliament. So there's that. But there's also the fact that... Although, you know, you you say, oh, well, they can find a chink, they can muddy the waters. Actually, the Russian propaganda campaign, although it's generating a lot of smoke and noise, is not so far very effective diplomatically. They called this vote, uh, this international chemical weapons body, earlier this week, and they lost 15-4. So uh, the Russians are not really making much headway. And I think that might account for the increasingly harsh tone of their comments, including, as you mentioned, a kind of overt threat to Britain that the UK was playing with fire by pushing this story. And then, of course, there was these exchanges at the UN, which follows what happened at the uh, at the chemical weapons body. And the whole sense here is, again, that uh, the UK still got its allies behind it on this, that, you know, the, the vote at the, the chemical weapons thing that you mentioned was there were six nations who voted with Russia. But generally, the international consensus is still with the UK on this. Yeah, I think so. And also, I mean, the question is, well, what remains to be done? You know, we, we've had these expulsions, tit-for-tat expulsions. I think it will have startled the Russians a bit that it wasn't just Britain, that a number of countries followed through. And you heard a kind of kind of tone of rage, actually, in the Russian foreign ministry's reaction to that. The question is now, are there going to be further sanctions? I'm, I'm not sure there will be, although there might be. 
And, you know, what is Russia seeking to achieve? At the moment, they're looking for this joint investigation, which, again, I don't think they're going to get. So um, I don't think they're making much headway. But a lot of what Russia wants to do is, A, to obscure the picture, and B, to construct a kind of international legal defence, which I don't think they'll get very far with, but it, it allows them to rally what fewer allies they have. One of the extraordinary things we've seen, Henry, has been, you know, some of what I might put it politely is the useful idiots back home here who have used this, you know, what came out of Port and Down to say, well, actually, the government was misleading us. It was misleading the international community. And of course, Jeremy Corbyn was right about this all along. And we were rushing headfirst into something we had no idea about. And we saw, you know, Chris Williamson, who's an outride of Jeremy Corbyn, appearing on Russia Today, saying that it was all smokescreen to attack the Labour leader. And quite a lot of Mr. Corbyn supporters have done that because, again, they are more willing to give Russia the benefit of the doubt than the UK government, it seems. Yes, and I think that it's not it's not a wholly unpopular view in the UK that Vladimir Putin is a effective politician and that Britain should not be so confrontational with Russia. I think that was UKIP's stance when they were quite a popular party. It's obviously part of the Labour Party which likes that that stance. Um, Mr. Corbyn himself has been you know, criticised for being far too close to Russia for not criticising even uh, the Soviet Union in its time and, and and now seems to have morphed that sort of slight admiration towards... A, Which um, is quite bizarre when you consider the structure of you know the Russian state under yeah. Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Although I think one, one thing that one shouldn't forget, actually, is the lasting damage that's been done to British credibility, both inside Britain and outside, by the Iraq war. Which is and, what the Russian ambassador meant. But and this idea that the Iraq war should imbue you with some some greater scepticism of the intelligence services. Mm-hmm. In the case of Russia, it simply it doesn't really stack up because mm-hmm. 2006, Alexander Divinenko uh, was, was killed uh, in London and a British judge found that not only was Russia probably responsible for that, but it was highly likely that Vladimir Putin himself had, had approved the sure. killing. Um, and we've seen in Syria um, and we've seen in Ukraine... Russia's actions have have been every bit as bad as the worst fears um, initially attributed to them. So I think, although I think you're absolutely right that the Iraq war continues to drive domestic debate as well as international mm. how the international community looks at this. There's no history of Russia being accused of things and then not turning out to be blamed. Absolutely. And indeed, I mean, the Iraq war, they were imputing uh, the other Saddam had chemical weapons, which, of course, he turned out not to have that they could find or weapons of mass destruction. But here, these, these weapons have actually been used repeatedly. I mean, they've been used now on the streets of Britain, but they've been used in in Syria by the Syrian government. They were used, as I say, in these previous attempts at uh, murders of people the Russians didn't like. What do you make of the response from these people that we were talking about, Gideon? Because when the Litvinenko report came out, there was sort of widespread condemnation across the House of Commons. All the parties were united in condemning Russia. And of course, those who now run the Labour Party were fringe figures who didn't really have a platform and a voice. Now, you know, the leader of the opposition, Seamus Milne, who again has repeatedly had close links, even shared a stage with Vladimir Putin over the years. Um, you know, he, they've taken a very different attitude towards this. And that obviously does help Russia's case in even a little way. In a little way, yeah, sure it does. But I don't think, as I say, if you look at the big picture of what's actually happening internationally, there have been a couple of diplomatic moves and Britain has had considerably more support than than it might have expected at the beginning. So I'm, I wouldn't be too freaked out about it. I think one of the interesting things that's happening, though, is the implication that the government is not sharing intelligence with Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition, which they have done with previous Labour leaders of the opposition. And the implication of that is they don't trust him, 
not to pass it on. It's not quite clear on this, Henry, because Jeremy Corbyn is a member of the Privy Council, so he sees more than the public does. He sees more than most MPs do, but he's not privy to all the intelligence. Now, I believe that was the same when Ed Miliband was opposition leader, and it's basically up to the government how much they share. And we heard from Ben Wallace, the security minister this week, who confirmed, as Gideon said, Jeremy Corbyn has not seen all of the intelligence. Do you think this is because they don't trust him or just protocol? I don't know, but there is something quite interesting in Labour's position whereby it supported the expulsion of diplomats. So it was effectively saying that Russia deserves to have sanctions taken against it. It's not saying necessarily that Russia is is not the most likely source of this attack. It's sort of opting for some perhaps slightly idealistic and uh, unrealistic multilateralism and to use international bodies in a way that, yeah, of course, the British government would love to have the UN Security Council support and it would love to have the OPCW support. But, you know, the delaying tax of, of Russia are pretty obvious to any observer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think that the reason the British government isn't doing that is that after, you know, many years of observing Russian behaviour, they know exactly the pattern, which is to drag you into some international legal process where Russia can then further obscure things, delay things and wait for the outcry to die away. And that has proved at times an effective tactic for Russia, although I would argue, again, it tends to backfire on them. I mean, Crimea led to sanctions. The shooting down of the flight MH17 led to further sanctions. So the Russians, although they play this game, they're not that good at it. No. And finally, Gideon, you mentioned about more sanctions. You know, where does this ultimately go? Because we've had a bit of a tit for tat between both sides that, you know, the UK expelled diplomats, Russia expelled diplomats in return. And as you said, the UK had a very strong support from lots of different countries there. But, you know, what ultimately more can be done on this? Because at some point it does have to end. Otherwise, you end up breaking off diplomatic ties. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and the World Cup is, is coming up, which uh, is actually important because I think the Foreign Office and the British government will be worried about the security, not so much of the team, but of the, the fans who are, who are going out there. Uh, but I, I think the place to watch maybe now is Washington because the Americans are not particularly intimidated by Russian bluster. They appear to be gearing up to take some action against Russian oligarchs, based not so much on this case, but on the Magnitsky Act and uh, something to do with the collusion in the Russian election. And again, it's fascinating, you know, what's going on with Donald Trump there? Because, you know, who really speaks for the the American government? Trump, Trump apparently issued an invitation to Putin to the White House, yet the very same White House, you know, expels 60, was it, Russian diplomats? And is now looks like it's going to further expand sanctions on Russian oligarchs. So what you're saying is there doesn't seem to be too much consistency in Donald Trump's foreign policy. Certainly not in his foreign policy, but nonetheless, I think it must be a source of considerable disappointment to Russia that Trump has not apparently grabbed control of American foreign policy and that what they would regard as punitive American actions against Russia continue to come out. And finally, Henry, this has been a pretty good period politically for Theresa May that whenever there are issues of national security or defence she does tend to do quite well and I think even her most ardent critics in the Conservative Party have said she's stepped up to the plate, she's done well and she has much to the surprise of a lot of people led international opinion on this and brought together a big coalition, a lot of intense diplomacy on that and you know 
it doesn't take long before Conservative MPs are saying, oh, well, actually, you know, she's not quite as bad as all that and maybe she will lead us into the next election. Uh, perhaps. I mean, she has the support, interestingly, of the pro-EU faction of the Labour Party, so the kind of Chris Bryants, Ben Bradshaws, who are very critical of her on Brexit, are actually also very sceptical about Russia, very hawkish on Russia. I don't think Theresa May is going to lead Conservatives into the next general election, uh, but I think her, her exit next year might be slightly more graceful if things carry on. Knife crime seems to be on the rise in London. In the last month, some say it was higher than New York. There have been some dreadful stabbings this week, which created something of a panic about crime and safety in the city. And of course, it's become a political issue about stop and search, police cuts, and the effectiveness of Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London. But what exactly is going on here? Robert Wright, you were out reporting on some of these dreadful stabbings that we've seen. Is this just a particular spike? Is this a wave? You know, what is going on? It's still really unclear what's going on with the level of violence. Um, We should bear in mind that violence has been declining steadily for 20 years. Um, Crime survey data still suggests that violent crime is actually falling. So there is a bit of a mystery about why we've got this sudden spike. But it is clear that there has been a rise in violent crime in London, at least the most serious violent crime. And really, in many ways, everybody's scratching their head about what's going on here. Um, And I think a lot of it has been because, as you said, the sense that London has become a progressively safer city. And as I mentioned, reference it to New York then, there was a newspaper report that compared London to New York. Can I just make a point about this? I lived in New York for four years until quite recently, so I have a good sense of how, how the two cities compare. The idea that London is somehow no, now more violent than New York is absolutely absurd. Um, we should bear in mind, this is a comparison of two months' figures, months during which New York has been paralysed by a series of blizzards, and the long-term statistics in the two places are completely different. This was a viciously misleading newspaper story um, that it was a textbook example of how not to use statistics in, in the news. And, and I think we should be clear about that. London is not a more violent place than New York. No, of course not. And New York obviously has a lot of gun crime as well, which is a much less issue in London as well. Um, Miranda Green, so obviously, as I was saying, this has become very political very quickly. And I think a lot of people on the left have said, well, this is the example of police cuts. And obviously, since the Conservatives came to power in 2010, police budgets have gone down by about 20% across the country. There's been a lot less officers around and people are blaming this for one of the reasons. Do you think that's a fair criticism or do you think it's more about the forms of policing than the actual overall resources? I think it is quite fair to talk about cuts at this point. I mean, we should also remember that people with an axe to grind on uh, policing and criminal justice policy will use any story like this to make their point, you know, So you've also got those on the right who think that Theresa May's personal crusade to stop the police overusing stop and search was a mistake and are now arguing for much more aggressive street policing and an increase in those stop and search incidents, for example. So it's sort of being used on both sides. But I think when it comes to the policing cuts, there's no doubt that in London, the police seem less visible. And that's something that people actually talk about, you know. So it's another one of these questions where you have to look at the evidence, but you also have to take people's kind of lived experience seriously. I mean, a lot of police stations have been 
closing and clearly there are fewer officers and that affects what the police can do. I mean, in our area, which, for example, has an estate which was plagued by gang problems for a number of years and then got a lot better, the police have actually said that they're just not responding to certain categories of low-level street crime and crimes against property. Now, that, of course, is the absolute opposite of the whole ethos of zero-tolerance policing, where you take, take every incident seriously and you take every crime seriously in order to give people a feeling of safety and security that the police are in control, not the criminals. So this is a sort of change of atmosphere on London streets, which I think is it's worth taking seriously. I've been doing a lot of reporting recently on, on how police are being affected by these cuts. And the real conundrum for the police is that actually having police officers out on the beat is not a very productive use of police time in terms of, you know, clearing up crimes and so on, which is the kind of things they're measured against. And police have had to think about how they change using their resources. On the other hand, there are effective things that having neighbourhood police officers can do. And one of them is getting intelligence about what's actually going on in the street. So, yes, police forces have clearly directed resources away from those kinds of things. Uh, and, you know, th there needs to be a serious national discussion about how one uses the police. One of the things that occurs to me from what Miranda was saying here is... I've had a lot of people saying to me on Twitter, oh, we need to learn from New York and there should be more stop and search. Well, one of the lessons that's happened in the last few years in New York is that Mayor de Blasio came into office on a platform of ending routine stop and frisk. So the number of stop and search in New York has gone down. So, you know, people have to people have to make up their mind which which it is. Do we have to learn from New York? Are we going to have more stop and search? Because if we learn from New York, they've, they've had less of it. I think politically also it's very interesting because it's one of these cases where May is having to defend her record from when she was Home Secretary, you know, because she was so vocal about driving down the numbers of stop and search incidents because it was seen as such a kind of aggressive uh, move against ethnic minority populations that really did resent it and resented it over decades. So for her, the numbers of stop and searches going down is, is seen as a policy success but it's now slightly rebounding on her, particularly in the Tory-supporting media who are really going for it on this story this week. Just very briefly, I think we should define what stop and search is because I think it's very important for this thing. It's essentially police officers just stopping people on the streets, searching them indiscriminately. But when Theresa May was Home Secretary, she found that, you know, it was being targeted against particular ethnic minorities and it was seen as somewhat unfair and racist and that was why it was phased out. Uh, yeah, and I, having been out yesterday speaking to some young people in Hackney, I can assure you that nobody there thinks that more stop and search would be an effective way of dealing with this. These are people who've lost friends. These are people who do not want there to be more violent. And a very, very low proportion of those stop and search arrests led to discovery of knives and not a reasonable number of them led to discovery of small amounts of recreational drugs. It is a bitterly resented tactic and it is, was not really a particularly effective tactic and the idea that that is going to solve the problem is is a beguiling one but not a very intelligent one. But just to also get back to the argument on cuts, it's not just about police cuts it's about other sorts of local authority funding because as we've discussed here many times now, Seb, uh, local authorities, local government has really borne the brunt of austerity since 2010 and that of course affects all sorts of categories of youth services and you know where there is this problem with 
young men, because it is generally young men, although not exclusively, drifting into violence, what the communities are saying is that those services are th- that are there that could give them a sort of safe haven and point them in other directions have sort of disappeared. And I think if we go back to what happened almost a year ago with the attack in Manchester, Miranda, that was quite interesting because everyone assumed TM would come out of this sort of okay and that, you know, she's strong on security, as we were just talking earlier in the podcast about Russia. But Jeremy Corbyn took that and said, well, actually, let's have this debate about police cuts. And that was pretty effective. And you do have to think that, you know, if that narrative feels as if it could take hold again with knife crime in London... I think that's a very, very good point. It was extraordinary. Something happened during that election campaign that I didn't think I could imagine happening, which was for a Conservative government to be on the back foot against a Labour left-wing opposition on the issue of crime and punishment. And we saw the same thing after the London Bridge terrorist attack, which was, of course, so, so close to our offices here. And you're quite right... The government was vulnerable, partly because uh, May was the Home Secretary previously, so they could attack her on her personal record on crime prevention. And there was actually an opinion piece by Paul Mason, who is a strong supporter of Jeremy Corbyn, after the election. He said, this election is not about Brexit, it's not about the country, it's all about austerity. And at the time, people thought, well, it's not at all. But it turns out that he was actually right. On the politics of this, I think we're at a moment of huge potential danger because what you've seen sometimes after previous panics about crime is the determination to introduce new tougher sentences in the belief that that will solve the problem. I was speaking this week to Tom Gash, who's an expert on crime policy, and he said that this reminded him of the outcry in 2003 after a young woman called Letitia Shakespeare and another friend of hers were gunned down in a drive-by shooting in Birmingham and that led the then Home Secretary David Blunkett to introduce new tougher prison sentences. There is absolutely no evidence that that was effective. Tougher crime policies have been tried, they have not succeeded and in some cases they have made matters worse and we should be very aware of that danger at the moment and I think trying to think of more intelligent solutions to this problem than yet another set of attempts to introduce tougher sentences. If people are interested, I would recommend checking out the FT editorial we wrote this week where we looked at other cities. And one interesting example is Glasgow, which used to have a huge knife kind problem. And they took a very holistic approach to this, viewing it as both an educational thing, a public health thing, as well as a crime. And if you take it at that whole approach, that is how you tackle it. But the one person who has been quite missing more than Miranda has been Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, who I think, unfortunately, he'd been away on holiday when this broke this week. But eventually he came back and did some interviews and you know it's Sadiq's been mayor of London for a while now and you know generally people are quite split on his mayority that people on the left think that you know he's spoken up for London in the age of Brexit he's battered back against Donald Trump uh, and he's been you know a source of moderation within the Labour Party and also the most senior elected Labour politician in the country Others from the right think that he's actually achieved very little. He's far too interested in photocalls and not dealing with this kind of key issue. So this does feel like if he doesn't get this right, this is going to be a big issue for him when his re-election comes up um, in 2020. Well, that's quite right. I think that he has been quite skillful in dodging this particular controversy, as he has quite effectively dodged other ones during his 
mayoralty so far. I mean, he may end up being blamed for this, but he may also be successful in taking the generalised Labour Party line on blaming it on, on central government and on a period of, of austerity now with chickens coming home to roost, as it were, because it's kind of working for them so far. But I think it's a really interesting question as to how he will respond. I can't really quite understand why Sadiq Khan isn't coming out more strongly in this because he, he actually has a reasonable case. The, if you look at the details of police funding, the Metropolitan Police has not been getting the amount of money that you would expect it to get because of the way the funding formula works to stop big swings in funding and stop there being big winners and losers. The Met should be getting more money and the fact it doesn't have the resources that the funding formula says it should have is a big problem for a large police force that has to deal with a very difficult city. So I, I can't really quite understand why he's not making more capital out of this because I, I, I think he had, should have a reasonable case. Particularly with the local elections coming up which are expected to be a red tide sweeping across London. I think a lot of the Labour Party in London will use this as an argument to say, you know, this is why the Conservatives are, you know, not doing the right thing for the country. So we'll see how that goes in a couple of weeks' time. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Gideon, Henry, Miranda and Robert for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Joshua Oliver. Until next time, thanks for listening. The inexorable rise of China. The changing nature of work. The future of liberal capitalism. The power of Silicon Valley. The world of artificial intelligence. Join Gideon Rachman, Sarah O'Connor, Martin Wolf, Rana Faruha and John Thornhill as they explore some of the most significant questions of our age in a new podcast, The FT Big Picture, launching on April the 16th. To listen and subscribe, visit ft.com slash podcasts. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.